Welcome to the John Brown University Chapel Podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. This week's chapel speaker was Scott Key. Scott serves as CEO of Every Shelter, an organization that works with refugees to create safer, stronger shelters in the Middle East and East Africa, focusing on market-based response strategies. He holds a BS in construction management from John Brown University and a master's of architecture from Rice University. Uh, so Salem Springs, Arkansas, uh, it's not a very big town. Uh, when I was a student here, I'm, I'm sure it's the same. We had to kind of come up with a lot of our own fun. Uh, when I was a student, you'd often find me barefoot on the quad on a slack line. Uh, somebody wanted to set one up this afternoon. If it's not too rainy, I'd be happy to join you. We also played a lot of disc golf. I uh, hear in Salome, y'all have a course now. Uh, we played on a made up campus uh, course. We threw discs at trash cans, light poles, and trees. Rumor has it that the great John Brown himself created the course. Upperclassmen passed it down to lowerclassmen for years, but it's really cool that y'all have a course now and that tradition is lost. I'm kidding. Thanks, Brad, for outing me as a Jalvin guy. I hope that the rest of y'all won't hold me against it. Uh, Hold it against me. Uh, the last thing I'll share uh, before I go into my message is, uh, and I won't even pretend like this one's cool, but by the time I was a senior, a group of us formed this group called the Night Riders, and we would pick a costume and ride our bikes around Salem Springs late at night. Uh, I, I told you it's not cool, but sometimes we had celebrity guests join us, uh, like Billy Stevenson and Steve Beers. Uh, it's really good uh, to be here. Uh, it was a special place for me when I was a student here, but the older I've gotten, the more special JBU has become for me. Um, it's really humbling to be able to be um, on the stage. I thought I'd talk today a little bit about vocation and calling through the best way that I know how, which is just to tell my story a little bit. Um, and maybe there's some practical insights that y'all can pull. I remember being a student here, specifically in my junior and senior year, anxious. Anxious about what I was gonna do next. Um, you know, I had my, my, my head was full of ideas, convictions, experiences, and knowledge, and I didn't know what it all added up to. And I can't tell you specifically what God has planned for you, but I can tell you that he does have plans for you. I want to start with a, likely a familiar psalm, Psalm 127, 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to those his beloved sleep. This has always been a really confusing passage to me until recently. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Who's building? This verse suggests a co-laboring process that I must admit that I didn't understand and I still and come into an understanding of it. That balance of this work that we have to do while we're here on earth and the need to include God for, for him to be a part of it, for us to rely and trust in him. The beginning of the story that I'll tell today uh, started the semester before uh, my freshman year here. It's gonna be familiar to some of you. 
Right after I graduated high school, I was invited by a mentor of mine from high school who knew me really well to serve on a service trip to a rural part of Nigeria. I was joining a team of engineers and electricians. We were going to fix an electrical uh, system for a hospital compound, a water filtration treatment that provided clean water to the nurses and doctors. We were going there to do something really practical, and this mentor who knew me knew that this might be in alignment of my interests. It might be something that would expose me to something important, and he was right. And that's the first point I want to pull out from my own lesson, which is just this. There are people in your life who know you and love you and see things about you that you might not see. And sometimes that's God speaking to you and you should follow those opportunities. Perhaps like many of you who have participated in service, uh, service opportunities, the experience would go to change you. And that was definitely the case for me. Sometimes stepping out of what's familiar for you gives you new eyes to see the brokenness of creation in new ways. For me, in Nigeria, I saw poverty and sickness and inequalities at levels that I had never seen before. I saw grown men who had had polio as children, who the rest of their life were forced to drag themselves on the ground. The bottom of their half of their bodies were unrecognizable as human. It was a world in which working hard didn't necessarily meant that you get ahead because of rampant violence and corruption. I left that experience really shaken. Uh, I was confused. I didn't understand how all that could be and how it could be so bad. I believe now in hindsight that God used that experience to speak to me. I believe that many of you have had similar moments or will have similar moments like this. You don't have to travel halfway around the world for it either. For some of you, it's going to be seeing a loved one trapped in a cycle of addiction, maybe experiencing the vicious cycle that is the American foster care system, Maybe it's reading a scientific study on the results of climate change. Perhaps it's walking through a loved one with a diagnosis and treatment of cancer. The effects of sin are all around us. But there will be moments in your life where a particular issue will convict you in particular. And I believe that God is speaking to that sense of justice that he wrote into your heart. Moments where you know, you just know, this isn't how things were meant to be. For me, that trip to Nigeria left me feeling angry. I didn't know how these things that I had experienced could be. Why did the church that I had grown up in not seem to concern itself more with the suffering that I experienced? And while I believe there's plenty of room to critique the church in America, I know that my anger was misplaced. In my attempts to wrap my mind around what I experienced, instead of asking myself what I could do, I placed the blame somewhere else. So I arrived here as a student a few weeks after I arrived home from Nigeria uh, with two things, a very stubborn parasite and anger towards the church. I believe that if you found my editorials that I wrote in the Threefold Advocate as a student, I'd be embarrassed, maybe not by the passion and the earnestness, but the unforgiving arrogance that I had. I drew line in the sands telling others what it meant to, believe, to truly follow God as if I knew. And my story, personal story is marked with God not so gently revealing to me my arrogance, bringing me back to humility, reminding me time and time again that he doesn't need me. He doesn't need us. That rather, it's a blessing that he shares with us to follow him and his will. What I found at JBU as a student were other students who were on similar journeys, who had experienced similar crises of faith. I found staff and faculty that were not at all intimidated by the doubt that I had, the hard questions that I had. And somehow they were able to look past the, the unearned self-confidence and arrogance that I had to love me. They walked with me despite the fact uh, that, that I was constantly pointing fingers, modeling by words and action what it truly meant to be a servant in God's kingdom.
When I graduated with my construction management degree, I still had no idea what God was calling me to. I got a job, but I felt lost. I distinctly remember going to a bookstore with my wife, picking up a book from the architecture section. It was a book showcasing a myriad of design solutions, solving some of the most complicated problems that I had experienced uh, in my life and, and, and those that I hadn't. And I was in. I loved it. I saw, I saw designers finding clever ways of creating low-cost wheelchairs, creative ways for families to move clean water long distances by rolling cleverly designed barrels instead of carrying jugs of water on their head. I wanted more, and I wanted to be a part of it. I, I take a look back at that moment, and I recognize that God was capturing my imagination. He had wired me in a certain way, and because of the experience that I'd had in Nigeria and then later as a cent in Central America, I had eyes to hear, uh, eyes to see, and ears to hear when I encountered this book. Pay attention to these moments. Much like the brokenness that you experience that breaks through, that awakes, awakens you, pay attention to the moment when your imagination is captivated. This is your kingdom imagination where you can be fully consumed by something redemptive and good. God is speaking to you. He is igniting something within you that he wrote onto your heart before you were born. So I took the next step. I applied to architecture school. I created a portfolio the only way. Maybe a CM major knows how. I built things. I was admitted into Rice. The year I was admitted, only 0.5% of students that applied were admitted. A program that would become a large contributing factor uh, to starting every shelter for me. When I was there, I followed that kingdom imagination that drew me there, looking for opportunities to solve problems using design. I learned when I was a student there that there were over 50 million refugees in the world at the time, many of whom lived in camp settings, effectively camping for 27 years. And I invite you just for a moment to just imagine that, attempting to raise your family while camping for decades. Most of these families would live directly in the dirt. Many were freezing to death in the middle of the night, Many more were suffering needlessly from parasitic infections and high rates of diarrhea. And this seemed like an oversight. When you think about a building like the one that we're in, what do you think of? It's the walls, it's the roof, and it's the floor. And yet millions of these families were living in the dirt. And so we said as students, okay, maybe this is something we can do. So we started working on it as a student project. We caught our first real break as students when a group within IKEA that was developing a refugee shelter invited us to Sweden to test our floors. And we went from students whose calls no one would return to the students who had a picture of their floor in the IKEA shelter in the New York Times, and still most people wouldn't return our calls. When we finished our graduate work, we got real jobs, uh, but we kept chasing this passion. Uh, we had a small amount of grant funding left over from a grant we received to students, and we gave it all to a grant writer who applied for a grant within the U.S. Agency for International Development for us. That grant was only awarded to one in every 3,700 applicants, but we got it. And in what felt like a, a moment of divine multiplication, $500 turned into over $200,000. And that funding allowed us to invest in, in what was just a prototype, and, and it, it allowed us to invest in a production mold and start testing in earnest. That funding led us to Iraq and then ultimately Lebanon, where we would spend the next few years working with the same 34 families on the border of, of Syria and the Bekaa Valley, an area of Lebanon controlled completely by Hezbollah. At the end of our grant period, our data was good. The pilot was successful. Our families were proud of their floors. They were happy. We started seeing organic demand from other settlements nearby, families asking for our floors by name. We put in an order in partnership with the NGO that we had been working with. But after the order was put in and the floors were made, our partner backed out. 
And my partner and I found ourselves each saddled with five figures of manufacturing debt and no clear path forward. We had this work on top of our real job, this, this, this work that took us away from our young families, often to hard and dangerous places, and for what? Weeks later, I remember I was sitting in a car, my wife and I were on vacation, I was sitting in our car outside of a motel room. We were presenting our results to the second highest officer within the UN in shelter, who was in Geneva. We shared our results, and we implored him to tell us what was next. We saw the goodness that our floors had brought to the families that we worked with who had received them, but we didn't know how to move forward. And he stopped us and he said, hey, look guys, I've been doing this work for 30 years within this organization. I've seen many like you, hardworking, well-intentioned, who wanna come and solve problems, but I've never seen any form of innovation actually take root and succeed. You should go on about your lives and practice architecture. Uh, we set out to solve one problem, the need for good, clean shelter flooring. We imagined that the global system that aided refugees would come and welcome our work, that there would be a pathway for us within that system. It became clear to us then that the system was perfectly happy to provide refugees with dirt floors and bad tarp. We were crushed. Why had God brought us this far if this was the end? Around this time, a pastor in Houston where I lived who I'd never heard of had heard of our work. He was starting a program at his church, First Presbyterian. It was like a shark tank for social enterprises. Uh, we were going to compete for funding. Uh, we were in debt, disheartened, ready to quit. We said, why not? In that time, we fellowshiped with other believers who were on similar journeys with us. We prayed together. We learned together. Even though we were competing with each other for funding, it was a beautiful time for us to reframe the work that we were doing and understand our work and, as it related to the God who we claimed that we were serving with that work. I had to that point, and still often do, bring a really egotistical attitude to this work. You're welcome, God. Look at this work that I've done for you. But God used this time to tell me that the God who can cause the stones to cry out doesn't need me. God doesn't need us in this backwards kingdom of his where the first will become last, where the humble will be made great. Serving the kingdom may be as much or more for our benefit as it is those who we seek to serve. God blesses us by preparing this work for us to do. Outside of this program, but during the same time, I was learning other lessons about my past successes that I thought were mine. I found out uh, that my admission to Rice was not as I thought, this program that only accepted 0.5% of all applicants. At the time, my best friend, at the time that I was applying, my best friend who had gone through the program, his wife was diagnosed with cancer and ultimately died. He was working for two professors who I later learned were on the admissions committee that year, who thought their employee who they cared about could really use their friend around. That one in 3,700 grant that we received, around the time that I was in this program, I went to DC for a conference and I met my USAID grant manager for the first time. And he said, hey Scott, did I ever tell you why you got that grant? Well, uh, obviously it's because our projects is great. He's like, yeah, yeah, sure. But two years ago we received funding that had to be used for refugee related purposes and you were one of two applicants in our inbox at the time. Very humbling on, uh, for us. So, so let me reframe what I've said so far about my story. We experienced God's brokenness in a new way that shook me awake. God placed me in a context here at JBU where, where I had staff and other students who could help guide the anger that I felt towards a really productive place of, of knowing God better. God later ignited an interest of me in a bookstore of all places in work that attempted to address and redeem the brokenness that had convicted me. And then what happened? I listened, I followed, I did the work in front of me, I applied for architecture school, we tested with IKEA, we applied for the grant, we did the work. 
but my admission to the program, receiving the grant funding, God made it clear that the outcomes were his. The work was mine. We were co-laborers despite my own attitude and my own non-reliance on him. I was laboring in vain, eating the bread of anxious toil, failing to recognize the ultimate builder's hand in work, failing to trust that he was in control, failing to, to learn to rely on him and trust in him. And I confess that I still struggle with this. Back to the program at the church, we ultimately won. We were awarded $75,000 to the competition. This is the funding that we use to launch every shelter. This is the point in my story, as Brad mentioned, that intersects with another JV alum who I wish could be here, my co-founder, Nicole Iman. She was Nicole Ediger while she was here. Nicole spent most of her adult life in East Africa and in Afghanistan serving in aid and development context. She lives in the UAE with her, her three girls, and I wish she could be here. We brought together our experience, mine with design and hers with field experience, to form every shelter. We recognized the brokenness not just in the displacement itself, but in the systems that aided the refugees themselves. They failed to see that refugees were beings created in the image of God, and sometimes did more harm than good in the process. Displacement in, decades since, uh, displacement in the decades since the system was created has evolved, but the system hadn't. And we recognized the need for something more sustainable and holistic. So I'm going to walk through a little bit about every shelter. What every shelter does is we create jobs for refugees who create sustainable shelter products for other refugees. Since my time in grad school, the number has gone from 50 million refugees to 82 million. 27 years is the average number that a family will be displaced. And despite contrary beliefs, less than 1% of refugees will ever be resettled. This is the growth rate while I was a student. Let's see if I can get the slide to move forward. I was, I was there in the, la the middle half of that last column, but the World Bank predicts that in the next three decades, this, this number is going to climb to be over 240 million refugees. And it's time that we come up with modern solutions to this problem, because this is what most refugees will receive for their decades-long camping experience, a bad tarp stretched over a structure and a dirt floor. Emergency floor is, is the product that we created that I told you about. It lifts families off the cold, wet, fecal infested ground. It's lightweight, it's modular, it installs in minutes by first time users. These boys are carrying half a shelter's worth of floors to their home and they would go on to install it in themselves. The day before this picture was taken, these boys slept, hung out, and did their homework on the dirt. It's no wonder that having a clean, dry floor can have such profound effects on health and educational outcomes. We're a very data-driven organization. We see dramatic decreases in parasitic infections, diarrhea, anemia, sleep goes up, uh, educational outcome goes up. And now as an organization, we've switched our attention to focus on the roof and the walls, also in my world known as the TARP. The UN TARP that they've used since the 1970s only lasts three to six months. We need products that last for years and not months. Two years ago on the border of Syria, we saw a family using an old billboard instead of a traditional TARP. It had lasted them for two years with no issue. And it was a major light bulb moment for us. Globally, billions of square feet of billboard material will be produced, will go up as an advertisement, and will ultimately end up in the landfill. Why? Because billboard operators are contractually obligated to protect the brand identity of their clients. Meanwhile, we have a massive and growing need for good tarps. We solve the brand identity issues by simply taking the advertisement and sewing it up on itself, creating super strong shelter tarps in the process. To date, we've repurposed over 130 tons of this material. But as important as what we make is how we make it. Back home in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, our colleague Noelle Kabale was a seamstress. When she fled from the Congo to Uganda, she brought those skills and talents with her. 
But this is what Noel said. When refugees flee their country, they don't leave their brains there. They come with their brains full of potential and talent. Noel and many like her struggle to provide for their families. And yet, this is how the system works. We make bad tarps and establish economies. We put them on boats and then trucks to regional warehouses, more boats, more trucks to local warehouses, where that last truck will drive with the bad tarps past many like Noel who could have made better tarps in the process. And creating a system like this isn't just about saying that handouts are bad. If we look at Syria, we're 10 years past the, the inception of the Syrian civil war. We've built systems where families rely on giving and giving and giving, and now that our attention's elsewhere, the money runs out. Mark my words, in the next few years, we'll see another mass migration of Syrian refugees in, into Europe, taking scary boat rides across the Mediterranean. When families are desperate, they flee. We're, we're creating a new system, one that uses, utilizes the most underutilized resource in, in the refugee aid system, which is the skills, talents, and entrepreneurial spirit of the refugees themselves. We're starting in Uganda where over 1.4 million refugees live. Refugees have lived in Uganda since the 1950, but we're creating the first tarp factory, creating tarps made by refugees for the refugees that are hosted there. But it's just the start. 86% of refugees live in developing countries, places that don't offer them significant employment opportunities. We need to create a system that honors the fullness of those that we seek to serve. I'd love to share more about our work in every shelter, but I want to I uh, bring our, my talk to a close since I, I have just a little bit more time. Over the years, I've had the pleasure of getting to know many other uh, social entrepreneurs people who are trying to solve the world's toughest problems in really creative, beautiful ways. Some of them are Christians, some of them are not. But I'll tell you something that they all know, that we all know intimately. Despite our efforts, we will never solve these problems. These issues that we've set out to fix, we can't fix them, not fully. For many of my peers who do not know the Lord, this is disheartening to say the least, in quiet moments, they'll share a level of despair that they feel asking if this work is truly worth it, if we can't fix it. So why bother? Why do this work? Isn't that laboring in vain? Something we Christians know makes all the difference. And it's simple. We know how it ends. He's coming back. and with them the renewal of all things. Sorry, I cry easily sometimes. <laughs> he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Do our efforts even matter? If, if all things will be made right? If someday they'll all be made perfect? Yes, of course. We know this because God calls us to join him in this restorative work. It's in joining of his will that we can glimpse the fullness of what he has in store for us. Makoto Fujimura, a very famous painter, came and spoke here in this very room uh, when I was a sophomore. And when he spoke, he expounded on this biblical vision, the returning of Christ. We are the bride. Christ is the bridegroom. When he returns, it's a wedding day and we must be busy preparing. We Christians in a way, should be the penultimate wedding planners. And we need everybody. We need everybody of all forms of conviction, skills, and interest to help prepare for that day. We, didn't, we need engineers. We need teachers. We need painters. We need doctors. 
We all must be busy bringing into the present what N.T. Wright calls anticipations of God's future. I don't know specifically what God has called for you, but I do know that he's calling you to his service. I know that God has wired you a certain way. He gave you specific convictions and interests. He put you here right now in a place, and he has made it clear that the work is abundant. Please don't wait. Listen and take the next step. And then the one after that, we walk faithfully often as Christians with lanterns and not floodlights. I promise that God will be faithful in return. I told you a bit about my story. It wasn't always clear what the second step was going to be. Sometimes I saw God's faithfulness in hindsight only. But it's a process. I'm learning to be a better listener to him. I'm learning how to better understand how to balance the part that is my work as a builder of my organization and our mission and how to rely on him as the ultimate builder. Most of all, listen. Listen to mentors and leaders in your life when they see something about you you may not see. Listen to the moments and the aspects when that fall wakes you up and shakes you awake. Listen to those times when your imagination and interests are ignited. Listen by starting, by doing. The work is abundant in all around you. Take the next step. We're all diverse members of one body. No one member more important than the other. The work is ours, but the outcomes are his. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, and we'd love it if you'd leave us a review.